Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, through he, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 
By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For the time what fell me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, saw by the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.
Perhaps you would join me in prayer, both here and in the venue. Gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the examples of faith, this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. How powerful it is to listen to the unfiltered Word of God. How powerful it is to consider these heroes of old who provide such an example to us even though they did not experience what we now experience, the something greater that is now ours, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I confess that I don't feel like there's anything much I can say after hearing that. Your word is more than enough. But I pray that perhaps you would teach us a bit this morning from Hebrews 11 how we might grow a bit firmer in faith. I ask together with my friends that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, what a stunning chapter that is, isn't it? Simply glorious to hear the whole of Hebrews 11 and the first couple verses of Hebrews 12. That would be a great study to mark up. As we've been talking about marking up our Bible marking up the book of Hebrews, that would be a great one to do over these coming weeks that you take Hebrews chapter 11 and look at those stories of faith of all these great Old Testament characters and go back to those stories of faith, looking them up from their original references and marking up your scriptures as they go. Listening to those words once again makes me wonder, how would I live today If I really believed with absolute certainty that God cared about my every action? How would I live today if I really believed with absolute certainty that there is a heavenly country, one that is being prepared for us, that makes the most beautiful Nebraska sunset pale in comparison? How would we live today in the face of any opposition, if we knew that God was a rewarder of those who faithfully trust him? How would we live today if we were sure that what the scriptures mean by faith, at least here, is not merely some one-time belief and give me insurance for heaven, but the ongoing robust connection well with God that leads to boldness and deep abiding trust. Conversely, well, we might ask, how would my life look differently? How would your life look differently if you did not believe? How would it look differently, though, than it currently does? Would it look much different than the lifestyle, the values, the behavior, of your neighbors. 
This is the axe that Hebrews 11 seeks to grind. You see, if our lives do not look substantially different than our neighbors, then we, people of faith, perhaps have adopted more of our neighbors' values, beliefs, lifestyle, and practices than we've thought. It's a radical faith that Hebrews 11 calls us to this morning. After 10 chapters of deep study into theology and the new covenant and this idea that something better is now here, that Jesus plus nothing else equals everything, if we have nothing else but we have Jesus, we have all that we could possibly need, after 10 chapters of study about how he fulfills the old covenant and the most severe warnings found in the New Testament followed by the most tender of encouragements, that was Hebrews 1 through 10, a deep study of theology. Now he shifts gears and he moves over to application. And the application begins with one word, doesn't it? Faith. Robust, deep trust on an ongoing basis in the living God. In essence, the scriptures tell us that it's the bold life of faith that pleases God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six 6 says. So what I've taken the liberty of doing here, though, this morning is coupling together Hebrews 11 with a verse that I've been meditating on for, for the past couple months. You've seen it already. It comes from Isaiah 7, verse 9, and it says simply, If you are not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. Woo! Is that a word or What? I found that to be so true. When I'm not firm in faith, I lack confidence for all that is coming to me. I lack confidence as a husband, as a father. I lack confidence as a Christian when I'm not firm in faith. When we're not firm in faith, we just feel like a reed swaying in the wind, never quite sure when we might be broken. Isn't that true? When we're not firm in faith, we can feel like we are standing on quicksand, just kind of drowning into the morass of the culture around us. When we're not firm in faith, we are dependent on how many likes our social media posts get. When we're not firm in faith, we are dependent on whether other people are pleased by us. We're just not firm. The big idea for this morning's message is to be firm in faith is to regularly remember the works of God and then to boldly live out of them. To regularly call to mind the great works of God from of old as we see from Hebrews 11 and then to boldly live out of those in the life that God has called us to here in Kearney and in the surrounding communities that we live in. To boldly live from all that we know that God has done and all that we know about him. So what I'd like to do from Hebrews 11 and the remainder of our time today is to talk about a few steps uh, that we can all take to grow our faith a little bit firmer. Raise your hand with me though this morning if you'd like to have firmer faith. Anyone? Okay, 100% of the hands just went up in both the venue and in the auditorium. We would all like a bit firmer faith. We all know that we can grow in this area. So here are three steps that we can take toward firmer faith. 
They all have to do with, with remembrance. The first one is remember the past. Now, if we were to whittle down Hebrews 11 to just two words, they would be these, faith and remembrance. Just those two words, faith and remembrance. So the author provides this who's who of the Old Testament to embolden our faith as we remember the ways God worked through their lives. One of the advantages of the ancient Jewish culture over our own is this. In the ancient Jewish culture, they took time to remember the past. They took time to remember the great things that God did across many, many generations, and they retold the stories of God's mighty works to the generations to come. This was a memorization culture that deeply imbibed its history and processed through it for a couple different reasons. One, to brag on the greatness of God, to brag on the greatness of God, and then two, to inculcate the next generations with the great things that God did through ordinary faith of ordinary people in previous generations. They practiced this oral tradition in order to preserve what God had done. Now, in our culture, I'm kind of surprised. I don't know about you. I'm kind of surprised by how, how rarely we talk about the things of God. Do you notice that? Like, even amongst Christians, it's almost like, oh, you're getting a little bit too personal there, asking me how I'm praying for my family. You're getting a little bit too personal there, asking what's really going on in my soul and how God might be interacting there. Why is that? Why are we ashamed to talk about the things of God, the greatness of God, what he's done in our lives, what he's doing right now? As you read the genealogies and the histories and the Psalms of the Hebrew people, they bragged on God constantly. They talked about what God had done in their families and their communities, and that became this great catapult for their faith. Because a simple truth is, we become more like whatever we dwell upon. Let me say that again. We all become more like whatever we dwell upon. Whatever we talk about, whatever we set our gaze upon, whatever we dwell upon, we'll become a bit more like that. And so the author of Hebrews here is helping his audience remember the past. Remember ways that God intervened in the past through an ordinary woman like Sarah, for example. Sarah had a little mustard seed of faith, if you remember. She laughed at God when he first came to her and said, you're going to be the mother of a nation. She laughed out loud. But then God used her little mustard seed of faith to turn her into that, the mother of the Jewish people. You think of the faith of, of Abraham. Was it always pure? Anyone? Not so pure. It was a mixed motive, manipulative faith at times. But God still used it. Or Moses, who coupled anger with his faith. Or Samson, who coupled pride with his faith. Or a sin-stained woman like Rahab, a prostitute listed here, who was known for her sin, and yet God used her great faith to preserve his people and bring them into the promised land. And on and on, well, we could go. You think of Noah. I mean, imagine how people would have laughed at him when he begins building that ark, right? But he said, I'm going to follow God no matter what other people think. On and on while we could go, God used the bold faith 
of very ordinary people to ensure an extraordinary future. And he still does today. He still uses the bold faith of ordinary people like us to ensure a more extraordinary future in which mixed motive people, people who are kind of a mess, people who have all kinds of issues in their family or in their personal lives, yet still say, I'm going to trust in you today, God. I'm going to remember what you've done in the past and I'm going to move forward a step out of faith because of what you've done in the past. Still today, he is using us. You see, Hebrews 11 is not intended to be just something that we look back and we say, oh, wasn't that great that God did that back then? No, Hebrews 11 continues today. Across all generations, even into 2017, we see people taking bold steps of faith and being rewarded by God as we do so. He wants to use ordinary people from every, from every tribe and tongue and nation to step out boldly and do extraordinary things for God. We should brag on the greatness of God in our life groups, with our kids, in our families. We should talk about what God's personally doing in our souls, how we're wrestling with him as Jacob did. This should be part, become part of our normal language. You, you ever get together with, with old high school friends? Anyone? Anyone ever get, get together with old, old high school friends or old college friends? And perhaps, well, when you do, what, what do you do? You reminisce about the past, right? You talk about some old fun times or not so fun times. You talk about your old hijinks, don't you? And in the process of, of talking about those old times reminiscing, what happens to those relationships? They get bonded a little closer together. And so it is for us. You think about this. In our life groups, with our families, we talk about the things of God, the ways that he has cared for us in the past, we talk about what he's doing in our lives right now, it bonds us closer to each other even as we are bonded closer to God and we remember that he still wor works through ordinary people of faith today. How do you remember, here's a critical question, how do you remember what God has done in your past? How do you do it? One of the things that Susie and I have done in previous times in our relationship. We've gotten a little bit out of the habit recently, but one of the things though, that we've done is taken these two boxes, and inside one box is a series of prayer requests that we've been simmering at any given time for months or even years on end. And we write down those prayer requests on little three-by-five note cards. This will be a common repeated theme across my tenure here. Right? We write down these requests on three by five note cards, and then when those requests get answered, we have another box. And we pull out that other box in which we go in from time to time and we remember oh, back in 2005, God did this. Back in 2004, God did this. Back in 2007, 2010, and on and on. We remember what God has done to provide for us because we suffer from the same thing that you do, amnesia. Okay? And so if God intervenes in our lives, we would be wise, as the Hebrews did, to brag about it 
and then write it down. Remember it and go back to it on a regular basis. Honey, we got to get back in that habit, don't we? we got to remember the past. Nothing is more powerful for boosting our faith than a very specific answer to prayer. If the God of the universe speaks, you might want to hold on to that one. Remember the past, and then second, you build your faith, you get firmer faith by remembering the future. Our author takes us back into history, and then he or she, we're not sure who writes this book, propels us into the future. Speaking of all those saints of old, the author writes this, Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They didn't receive the things that were promised, which we have now received. Okay, they had great faith, but they didn't get to uh, receive the new covenant. They didn't get to receive the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. All that that makes our situation so much greater than theirs. They were looking forward to it, but they didn't get to receive it. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are speaking, that they are seeking a homeland. They're seeking a better place. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He's prepared for all those who trust in him a better country. He's prepared for all those who trust in him a new Jerusalem a better city. Listen, all of our lives, no matter how short or long they may be, are nothing more than a dot on eternity. Nothing more than a dot on a really, really long line. No offense, okay? I'm not trying to be mean here on Sunday morning, but isn't this this the truth? Like, whether you live 25 years or 50 years or 75 or 100 years, your life is but a dot on the line of eternity. And of course, we think mostly about that dot because that's where we are. But wouldn't it be wise for us to follow this example that I just read from Hebrews 11, 13 to 16 and think from time to time about the better homeland? Wouldn't it be wise for us to think from time to time about that better country that we are eagerly awaiting Because we understand that our heart's truest home is not here on earth, but in heaven, thanks be to God. Our truest home, our heart's deepest desires will not be met here on earth, but only one day when we are in the presence of pure love and pure beauty where there is no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. That's where our truest desires will one day be met. Remember the line. Remember the line. We live on this little dot, but God has something far greater for us, this heavenly country that will be ours. I had a friend years ago who reminded me of this. His name was Matt. He was married to Jessica, and they had five kids. Matt and Jessica made the bold and courageous decision on their convictions that they were going to live on one salary. He's a teacher, not a big salary. They decided that she would homeschool their kids 
all five of them, in Boulder County, where the property costs are way higher than here in Kearney. Okay? It was a big decision, a tough decision. It meant living extremely frugally, not knowing if they'd be able to make ends meet at times. So they lived a very, very simple life. I made the silly decision, I'm not sure why I did this, well one day we were playing basketball together and I told him about my honeymoon, which was to Hawaii. <laughs> I know, don't hold it against me, I went to Hawaii. It was great, it was glorious. My parents bought us this honeymoon to, to Hawaii and had a great time there and I got back and told my friend Matt about our honeymoon and said, Oh, we went snorkeling. Snorkeling is one of the coolest experiences on earth. To see all those beautiful little creatures down there by the coral, it's one of the coolest things I've ever done. And I was telling him about that, and he said, oh, I, I can't wait to go snorkeling. I said, cool, Matt, when are you going snorkeling? When are you and Jessica t- taking off? And he kind of just paused. And he said, oh, I, I don't know when I'll go. And then he paused some more. And he said, but I know I'll go one day in heaven. And I was like, that's such a weird statement, Matt. You can go snorkeling in heaven? That doesn't sound like the harps and the singing and the clouds. You're weird. He wasn't trying to be a super spiritual guy. He just had a greater hope. He had a greater faith. In the renewed heavens and the renewed earth with resurrected bodies, imagining that future homeland, that future country, he had a better hope than I did. We are wise to remember the past and we are wise to remember that this dot is not all there is. We gotta pause and remember the future. Finally, it's critical that we remember the truth of the resurrection. Remember the truth of the resurrection. Friends, there's nothing wrong with having to pause from time to time and re-examine why you believe what you believe. Nothing wrong with having to pause and re-examine the good reasons that we have to believe that God actually rose Jesus from the dead. I want you to read this verse, Hebrews 11, verse 1, from the screen out loud with me. Everyone in the auditorium and the venue, let's all read together. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Isn't that interesting that the closest thing that we have to a definition of faith in the Bible includes these two words, sure and certainty. I mean, most of us, when we think of faith, we think of it as a blind leap, or at least that's what we're told. We're told by people in the culture that faith is a blind leap in some mythical wives' tale. But Hebrews, giving us a definition of faith, uses these words, you are sure of it. You are certain of it. Or maybe if you're not completely certain all the time, at least you have some good reasons for your belief, and based on those good reasons for your belief, you take a step into the unknown. You take a step Because of the evidence. Because we have really, really good reasons to believe that God was 
who he says he is. He is who he said he was because we have really, really good reasons to believe that God exists because we have great reasons to believe that the Bible is the most trustworthy and reliable document in all of history and because we have great reasons to believe that God actually rose Jesus from the dead in time and space, then we take a reasonable step on the basis of the evidence. That's faith. At least that's a big part of faith. Now there's an ongoing cultivation of faith. And what I'm trying to say here this morning is you can purposefully grow your faith by re-examining the good reasons that you have to believe your Christianity. If you're not sure what those might be, you might go back and listen once again to a series that we did this past spring, I Believe in God, but we looked at six of the most common objections to Christianity. And I'll tell you for myself, I was not willing to consider Christianity as a 20-year-old until I had good reasons to believe that it was actually true. And once I had good reasons to believe it was actually true, then I was willing to take a step into the unknown. And because faith is not quite as easy as it is, is not quite as easy for me as it is for some people, I have to go back and re-examine those lines of evidence repeatedly. I hope you're not embarrassed to have a pastor who sometimes has doubts. I do. And there are times that I have to go back and be intentional about rebuilding my faith, making it more firm still. And in the process, I find that it is emboldened again and again. It's really interesting here that the bookends of this chapter, this beautiful section on faith, begin here again in Hebrews 11.1 1, by saying, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then it ends with these lines from Hebrews 12.1 and 2. Remember, in the original version of the Bible, there were no chapter divisions. So you have that whole line of faith followed by these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne room of God. On either side, it says we are sure, we are certain, and Jesus rose from the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He endured the cross, he went through the crucifixion, he rose from the grave, our faith is now firm in that. It begins with surety, it ends with confident belief. Therefore, fix your eyes on Jesus, who finishes our faith, who endured the cross for you to bring you to God. He's saying this is a fact of history. It's not just a wishy-washy feeling. It's a fact of history. So believe in it. Trust in it. Set your gaze on it. Live boldly, firmly out of this. God rose Jesus from the dead, and one day he will rise you who belong to him as well. What a good, good word from this beautiful chapter on faith. I got a little confession to make. I used to believe that it was normal 
for Christians to live the kind of faith that was described in Hebrews 11. I used to believe that was normal. I used to believe it was really, really normal that Christians would say, yes, you did all of that for me, Lord Jesus. You died on a cross for me. You rose from the grave. You're now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to give myself completely to you. I used to believe that it was normal to wake up each and every morning and ask God, how would you have me be a person of influence today? How would you have me be on the move for your kingdom today? Your word tells me to go and make disciples, and that seems like a command. So Jesus, how would you have me follow you today? I used to believe that was normal Christian activity. I was wrong. I was so sadly mistaken. What I found, unfortunately, over the years is that people tend to believe once and then stop risking ever again. True biblical faith includes boldly risking for God, asking him regularly, how do you want to use me? How could I be a difference maker for my family today? How do you want to use me in my neighborhood? How do you want to use me in my school? How do you want to use me in the workplace? How do you want to use me in this community? God, I don't want to just be like a vampire who sucks off the blood of Jesus and says, that's enough for me for all of eternity, but I want to be a disciple who goes after you each and every day. How do you want to use me? This is what Hebrews 11 calls us, ordinary Christians as we are, to live. So what's the application for you today? Perhaps if you'd say you're not as strong in faith as you wish you were, the application would be to remember the past. Go back and think through the ways that God has intervened in your life, in your family's life, and write them down. Don't miss them. Perhaps it's going to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 and Revelation 21 and 22 and remembering the future. That God has something better beyond our present pain. Lord, give me faith. Or perhaps it's some decision that you would make that God is calling to you right now that you would take a risk for his kingdom. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And without faith, it's simply impossible to please the living God. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that you call us to something bigger and better than merely getting by this side of eternity. Lord, some of us would have to confess that we've been lukewarm towards you. Perhaps you would confess that to God right now. Some of us would have to confess that we've trusted you to save us for eternity, but we're not living with anything that would resemble faith today.
Some of us would have to confess that our lives don't look different from our neighbors. Simply because we're not living with any sense of urgency for your kingdom. For this, Father, we are truly sorry. We humbly repent. And we ask that you would stoke the embers of faith in the venue this morning. We ask that you would stoke the embers of faith in the auditorium this morning. That you would prevent us from getting lukewarm about the one who has given his all for us. We trust God you're calling us higher. You're calling us to more. And we say together by faith, we're yours. Would you use us for your glory today? We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're willing to use our very ordinary faith. Would you use us for your glory today and this week? In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray together with one voice. Amen.